We've been talking about science and solitude, and the title of this morning's sermon is um, Dangerously Tired. And I feel like there needs to be like an ominous tone, an ominous music in the background. Huh? No, 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 we don't, we don't need to. Use your imagination. Dangerously Tired. I, I was almost going to start today by saying, how many of you are dangerously tired? The problem, though, is you don't know that you're dangerously tired. You don't know that you are beyond exhausted. And uh, so we're going to talk this morning as we talk about silence and solitude. Um, as I have been, I want to begin with uh, quoting Henry now. And I told you, I don't like, I don't like quoting long quotes because I like lose, you know, I stop paying attention like three sentences in. So do your best to, to stay with me because there's so much here, so much wisdom. And by the way, the best author, one of the best to read up on this is if you're serious about silent solitude is Henry Nouwen. Solitude is not a private therapeutic place. Rather, solitude is the place of conversion. The place where the old self dies and the new self is born. In solitude, I get rid of my scaffolding. No friends to talk with, no phone calls to make, no meetings to attend, no music to entertain, no books to distract. Just me, naked, vulnerable, weak, sinful, deprived, broken, nothing. And it is this nothingness that I have to face in my solitude. A nothingness so dreadful that everything in me wants to run to my friends and run to work and my distractions so that I can forget my nothingness and make myself believe I'm worth something. I try to run from the dark abyss of my nothingness to restore my false self and all its vain glory. But the task is to persevere in my solitude, to stay in my cell until all my seductive visitors get tired of pounding on my door and leave me alone. And the struggle is real because the danger is real. It is the danger of living the whole of our life as one long defense against the reality of my condition. The wisdom of the desert is that the confrontation with our own frightening nothingness forces us to surrender ourselves totally and unconditionally to Jesus. There's a reason why Dallas Willard, one of my favorite authors, called silent solitude two of the most radical, challenging disciplines in the Christian life in the West. You and I just don't do this. And as we've been talking about for the last two weeks, it's because we can't bear not having the distractions of our lives. We live in a noisy, wordy, peopled, performance-oriented culture. And when we are silent and alone, we realize, we come face to face with just how much our worth is based on what we do. Just how much our identity is shaped by what people think and say about us. And just how much our success is determined, not by the values of the kingdom, but by the world. It's uncomfortable. Some of y'all can't even sit here with a lot of people for about an hour and a half without thinking about my work tomorrow, that relationship, the grocery shopping list. 
Silent solitude is both a decision and a practice. It's both a decision and a practice. It's a practice because, as we said, solitude is the practice of being absent from people and things in order to attend to God. Silence is the practice of quieting every inner and outer voice to attend to. Can I just, I, I, for me, the inner voice is louder and more toxic than the outer voice. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? See, I could, I'm okay with the outer voices, you know? You could tell, right? I'm kind of, I don't, I, I, I'm easily like, eh. but the inner, oh, the inner voice, oh, the inner voice, perform, the inner voice, who are you really? The inner voice, where do you get your worth from? The inner voice, that, that voice, to quiet that voice. And silent, silence, as we've been saying, is critical to the experience of solitude. It's not just about being alone, but it's about being quiet. It completes solitude. Do you guys ever think about this? Maybe, maybe, maybe. Listen to this. Maybe the things that most need to be known or solved or figured out won't be discovered at the thinking level. Maybe the things that we most want to know, things that we most want to solve, things that we most want to figure out will actually be heard at the listening level. There's a reason why God says, be still and know that I am God. There's a certain kind of knowing that will never come if you're not quiet. Let me say that again. There's a certain kind of knowing that will never come unless you know how to be quiet and alone. not just a practice but it's also a decision it's a decision to deliberately exercise the discipline of letting go the scary thing about silence and solitude is that you come face to face with how much we want control how much we desire control how much frankly some of us are addicted to control because in silence and solitude in inactivity when we're not doing anything we realize just how much we try and control outcomes of our life, our family, our friends, our career, our future. And I've been saying silent solitude confronts us face to face with our addiction just to con- control. And it's a discipline, an exercise of letting go of our need to control, letting go of our control for outcomes, letting go of our agenda for his, letting go of what I would like to see happen for what he would like to see happen, letting go of my little kingdom agenda for his kingdom agenda, letting go, creating space for God's activity rather than my own. When you do this, two questions among others will come up. Number one is this, well, well, what if things fall apart? And what did I say last week? They will fall apart. The things that God never intended for you. Things that God never intended for you and me that we fill our lives with, it's a good thing that they fall apart. Amen? There are things we're doing right now that does not have our name on it. There are things you and I are doing, good things, kingdom things, that doesn't have our name on it. It's for somebody else, and yet we're doing it. And in silence and solitude, maybe it's an act of grace and mercy that God comes along and says, I'm going to let that fall apart because it wasn't intended for you. 
Psalm 127, 1, unless the Lord builds the house, we labor in vain. Who build it? It is an act of grace and mercy. I know it's scary that some things in your life and my life fall apart. Because God never intended it in the first place. Secondly, well, what if I fall apart? And what did I say last week? You will. The part of us that is the false self. The part of us that is in bondage to human approval and affirmation. The part of us that wants to run ahead without God. The part of us that desperately wants control. The part of us that lives a pretend life because we don't want to be involved. The part of us that God is saying the old self, the part, of, that, the part of you that I died to redeem, that part of us we cling on to in sound solitude, God says, that part will be dismembered and dismantled. Why? So that I could build you back up. To be whole, to be authentic, to be emotionally healthy. See, as I thought about this, you guys, being stripped of our false self for me is very much like the experience of being emptied, which is what the desert does. And we'll talk about that this week, next week. The experience of desert that you and I in the spiritual life, the wilderness that we hate with the passion, we go, I don't want to go through that. That experience is that experience that empties us. But as painful as being emptied is, you realize being emptied is a prerequisite to what? To being filled. God's presence that we desperately long to be filled with requires an emptying This is so foreign, even in the church here in the West. It's so foreign. How many of us are regularly taking time out to be alone and to be quiet before God? It's been so encouraging to hear many of you actually during the sermon series come up and go, that, that is kicking my, you know what, and it is revolutionizing how I'm looking at Christian life. But they all say, it's so hard to do it. To which we all go, well, you know, it's hard. So we've been in the book of First Kings talking about Elijah. And we're going to do this weekend, next Sunday, okay? The reason I love Elijah is the reason why I love the Bible. The reason I love the Bible. Can you tell I love the Bible? The Bible teaches in biographies and not abstract truth. It teaches in stories. And it's brilliant. You guys know. We get bored with abstract, abstract truth, you know? We listen to abstract, we get bored with. But stories, you know, with stories. <laughs> when somebody gets up and starts telling a story, all of a sudden you're drawn in, right? Stories, it grabs attention. It, 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 it engages us. And so it's brilliant that when God decided to send salvation, he didn't send an airtight argument. He sent an airtight person. A story. And there's nobody, by the way, more flesh and blood than Elijah. You guys know, sometimes you read the Bible, you go, they never act like I would. Elijah is one guy that does act like I would, okay? And we're going to see. James says in James 5 that he was a man. He was a human being just like us. And as we're going to see today and next Sunday, Elijah was this amazing man of God prophet, but he 
at one point in his life, became so depressed that he became suicidal. Elijah experienced ups and downs of life just like any one of us. But what set apart this ordinary man to be extraordinary, you guys, we've been talking about this, is he had this pattern in his life, which was at CC. It was into the desert, what? Out of the desert. Into the desert, out of the desert. Into the desert, out of... God takes him into the desert where he is stripped of his false self. God speaks his voice into him. He is transformed and changed. Then he comes out of the desert into the world. Into the desert, out of the desert. Into the desert, out of the desert. Our pattern, <laughs> out in the world. Busy, 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 busy. Once in a while, long once in a while, maybe come into the desert. Out into the desert, out of the busy, busy. Elijah, into the desert, out. Into the desert, out. And today, we're going to look at First Kings chapter 19. But I need to set up the context and tell you what happens in 1 Kings 18. Here is 800, 900 BC. Ahab and Jezebel sit on the throne. And they have instituted Baal worship. And state sponsored it. The entire nation is in a state of spiritual apostasy. It's in this setting that God sends Elijah to confront Ahab and Jezebel. And God not only sends Elijah to confront them, God also sends a drought. That lasts for three years. It's the most severe drought that the nation has experienced. The economy is in tatters. There is a bounty on Elijah's head by, from Ahab and Jezebel. And God says to Elijah, I need you to go and talk to Ahab and confront him. Now, again, we're going to look at 1 Kings 19. But instead of me telling you the story, I want to just read. Because it's one of those stories where it preaches itself. So I'm going to read 1 Kings 18. And then we're going to look at 1 Kings 19. Okay? You, you tracking so far? All right. So if you have your Bibles, you can follow along. But if you don't have your Bible and you just want to use your imagination, just listen, okay? First, First Kings 18, here is what it says. So when he, that's Ahab, saw Elijah, he said to him, Is that you, you troublemaker of Israel? I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You've abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Verse 21. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. By the way, that'll preach today. But the people said nothing. Then Elijah said to them, I'm the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces, put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God and I will call on the name of the Lord and the God who answers by fire, he's God. Then all the people said, what you say is good. Verse 25, Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls and prepare it first. Since there's so many, he, he's, he's trash talking them, okay? And he gets better actually, okay? Call on the name of your God, but don't let fire to it. So they took the bull given them and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. 
Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. Verse 27. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Just, I'm telling you. People in the Bible don't usually act like you and I would. Elijah acts like you and I would, right? He's sitting over there, just chilling out, going. Listen to what he says. Shout louder! Surely he's God! He's probably, you know, kicking, kicking, his legs are kicking. He's probably, you know, throwing stones or playing, whatever, right? Perhaps he's in deep thought. Maybe he's busy. Interestingly, the word busy, Hebrew translators don't translate the way it's actually written. It literally means maybe he's sitting on the toilet. <laughs> Shout louder! I don't know, maybe he's busy. I don't know, maybe he's off urinating somewhere. Or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and he has to be awakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears as was their custom until the blood flowed. Midday passed and they continued their frantic prophesying until time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then, verse 30, Elijah said to all the people, come to me. They came to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob. With the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he dug a trench around it, large enough to hold two sayers of seed. He arranged the wood and cut the bowl into pieces and laid it on the wood. Then he said, so now you're just showing off. Fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood do it again do it a third time and they did the third time the water ran down the altar and filled the trench and Elijah stepped forward and prayed Lord the God of Abraham Isaac and Israel let it be known today that you were God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command Answer me, Lord. Answer me. So these people will know that you, Lord, are God. And you are turning their hearts back again. Verse 38. By the way, I don't know why nobody made a movie out of this. Somebody needs to make a movie out of this. Any Christian filmmakers here? Make a great movie out of this. And don't make it Christian. You know what I mean? Just make a great movie out of it. Can I get an amen? Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. And jump into verse 46. The power of the Lord came on Elijah and tucking his cloak into his belt, he ran ahead of Ahab all the way to Jezreel. Why Jezreel? Jezreel is a capital city. 
And Elijah expecting two things. One, Ahab and Jezebel, having seen the power of God, would repent of their sins and say, the Lord, the Lord, he is God. Or that the people who seen God move in powerful ways would actually overthrow Ahab and Jezebel. Neither happens. And we come to 1 Kings 19, verse 1. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. And then verse 3, I can't even make this up. Elijah was afraid and he ran for his life. What? What? First Kings eighteen. What? what? When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there. If Elijah's a rich man, he leaves his servant. That's one thing. Elijah's not a rich man. His servant is his one man staff. For his ministry. And he leaves the servant. What's he saying? He's saying, I'm done with ministry. I'm done. God, I'm done. But what happened to First Kings 8? Verse 4, why himself went on a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom brush. Broom brush is like a desert shrub. Not much covering. And sat down under it and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, God. Take my life. Because I'm no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and he fell asleep. If you've been paying attention this morning, you might be able to maybe, maybe, maybe agree with some of the commentators who said, this is just bad editing. Because there's no way you can get 1 Kings 19 after 1 Kings 18. There's no way. That you can get somebody, a prophet of God, doing what he experienced in 1 Kings 18. And then four, four verses later, at the height of his success, height of his ministry success, four verses later is in despair and he wants to kill himself. But the thing is, if you think like that, not only does it tell you that you don't know much about the human condition, it also tells you you don't know much about Christianity. Because I can think of at least three people who said, God, take my life. There's Moses in Numbers 11. There's Elijah here. And then there's a guy named Jonah in Jonah 4. Would you consider those guys weak links in the body? Would you consider them immature Christians in the body? You know what's amazing about the Bible? I'll just be quick about this before I go on, especially if you're not a Christian. I love the integrity of the Bible. I love the realism of the Bible. I love the fact that it shows people as they really are. And here's the thing that I've noticed. I'm just going to speak for myself here. When you look at the examples of, and I, I know I'm speaking to a handful of people, and this will hit you deep, like it hit me deep. In every case, when you see Numbers 11, Moses, Elijah, and Jonah, in every case, 
It comes when they say, God, I'm done. Take my life. It comes after actually incredible success in ministry. And here's the thing I've noticed. These men of God and women became suicidal, not despite their success, but oftentimes because of it in ministry. There's three things about Elijah that I notice. And afterwards, you see what God does. Number one, I see he's triggered. He's triggered. After experiencing an amazing, powerful display of God, one person, one person says something to him, and all of a sudden, it throws him into a tailspin. Anybody ever happened to you? Maybe your boss, maybe mom, dad, maybe a friend, a spouse. Some amazing things happen. And one person, one person saying something, and it doesn't matter what happened the day before or the week before, great things happen. It sends you into a spiral of despair. By the way, can I just ask you a question if that's you? How long are you going to ignore that? How long are you just going to, yeah, yeah, it happens to me all the time whenever he or she comes around. But you know, how long are you going to ignore that? When are you going to have the courage to maybe explore that with a pastor, a therapist, community of people? I'm going to say real quick before I go on. If you are sitting here and you are somebody that gets triggered by a certain person and what they say who they are, and doesn't matter what happened there before, it sends you into a dark. You need to explore that. Otherwise, we continue to live the false pretend self we've been talking about. Secondly, he's depressed. I am a pastor. I'm not a therapist. So, therapists, counselors in the house, be gracious with your pastor. In my 25 years of experience in ministry, when I see people that are depressed, it's a combination of factors. I've seen some people, it's biological. Chemical, neurological. For some people, it's genetic. I actually think that some folks carry, and I know that research is, you know, mixing this. I think there is, I think also there's environmental. It's amazing to me. There are people here who walk around like nothing has happened, and you're living under a state of depression. Why? You just lost somebody. You went through a divorce. It doesn't matter. I'm just going to plow through. Environmental. Then I've also seen people who get depressed. Because of spiritual warfare. I think there is a demonic influence. Now remember I said combination. Okay. I think there are demonic factors to state of depression. And then there's fifth. And then there's fifth. You know what that is? Listen. For many of us this might be. It's when we don't live authentically. It's when we live someone else's life. See some of y'all walking around going. Yeah I have this low energy, low depression. What's going on? My question to you is. Are you living a divided life? Pretending to be somebody. Maybe you're living a life your parents wanted you to live. A combination of factors. Again, I'm going to say this one more time. When are you going to explore that? And then third. He's dangerously tired. He's exhausted. He's completely depleted. Physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. Everybody, please look up here. Because you need to hear this and hear this one sometimes you and I can literally be too tired and too exhausted to find God. I 
I'm trying to hear from God, Peter, but I can't seem to hear him. You might be, I might be too tired and too exhausted to hear from God. It's not because you're not praying enough. It's not because you're not spiritual enough. It might be for some of us because we have lived for so long without limits and because we are so exhausted and tired that we are too exhausted and tired to hear from God. Am I talking to anybody this morning? Are you living without limits? Are you living without boundaries? Are you living in a state of complete emotional, spiritual, mental, physical depletion? And you're going, going, and going, and going, I can't seem to connect with God, and there's no sense. You might just be too tired and too exhausted to hear from God. There's a good tired You know what good tired is, is when we feel the level of weariness after a job well done, but it's accomplished out of the best of who we are. It's, it's when we're tired from, uh, from doing and expending energy, but it comes out of a good rhythm of work and rest. It's a good tired and good exhaustion that comes that gets restored after brief moments of rest or a day away. That's good tired, but there's dangerous tired. Is you're tired and you've been tired for so long, you don't even realize that you're tired. You're tired and you've been so tired for so long that you're numb to the fact that you're tired. You can't even sit over a cup of coffee or maybe you have 12 cups of coffee before noon. You can't even just not clean or repair things just to be with people that you love and care about. You can't help Check voicemail or email one last time before you go to work. Your nightstand is full of books. And you have to consume all this information to stay on top of the game. You can't pay attention to me right now. Maybe you're indulging in escapist behavior. You're so tired that you can't engage in life-giving activities. So you turn to shopping. By the way, I don't say shopping like this anymore, most of it. Shopping, which is dangerous. Overeating, overdrinking, watching pornography. You're so tired that you literally can't engage in life-giving activity. Here's another. You're so tired that you can't even experience full range of your emotions. Listen to me. You can't just numb negative emotions. When you numb emotions, you numb emotions, both good and bad, period. You're so tired that you are fearful of just allowing sadness and grief, maybe loss, to wash over you. And you just, and I'm telling you right now, when you numb sadness, you numb joy. When you numb grief, you numb love. And then there's third. Ironically enough, when you're so tired, you look very, very busy. And you look very, very busy. 
It's like we're afraid if I just stop running, stop running, stop running. If I just stop running, maybe I'll start feeling these emotions. And who wants to, I'm, I'm, no, I don't want to do that, so I'm going to be busy. So I don't have to think about shame. I don't have to think about the fact that I feel guilt. I don't have to think about the fact that I haven't forgiven. I don't have to think about the fact that I'm angry at my parents and I haven't forgiven. I don't have to think about the fact that I'm painfully lonely. I'm going to run, run, run. Child of God. You know what happens when you do that? You become unable to hear the voice of your heavenly father in the center of your being. And you forget who you are in Christ. You forget what it is that God called you to. And when you don't hear the voice of heavenly father, the voice of the outer world and the inner voice inside of you becomes deafening. I know I'm making you feel extremely uncomfortable this morning, but I got to ask, are you dangerously tired? Are you ignoring it? How long are you going to ignore it? Are you indulging in escapist behavior? Are you numbing your emotions? You know what I love about God? What do you think? How do you think God would deal with the despondent prophet like this? Do you know what he does? Because that's what I want to finish with this morning. It'll blow your mind. See, see, it's really uncomfortable in here this morning. It's heavy. Verse 5. All at once, an angel of the Lord touched him and said, you're so pathetic. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. That's not what he says. <laughs> Angel of the Lord said, Tired? Why are you so tired? All you did was say something. I did all the work. Angel of the Lord said, Say it with me. Get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals in a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord, what'd you say, Misty? The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank and strengthened by that food. He traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, Mount Horeb, the mountain of God. We're going to talk about the next week. That's the Mount Sinai. That's where God is. Incredible. But anyway, next week. When angel begins, when the angel of God begins to deal with Elijah, what does he do? What's the first thing he does? He cooks a meal for him. He cooks, he bakes a cake. I'm going to say it before you do. He makes him an, an angel food cake. Okay, so that's what he does. Sorry, it was so bad. It was so bad. It was so bad. It was so bad. So bad. Church, does this blow anybody else's mind? 
Is this encouraging to anybody? Because here's the thing. Where I grew up, my perspective of God, and I'm going to talk about that before I end. My perspective of God is when I'm tired, when I'm worn out. My perspective of God is here's a lecture. Here's a sermon. There is no lecture. There is no sermon. This gracious God simply says, I want to cook you a good meal. And he essentially says, I'm just going to listen. How are you doing? you got to be so tired. See, the picture of God that I have is a picture of Christians that I grew up with, which is when you're depressed or despondent and despair, they spiritualize and they go, hey, hey, did you pray enough? Hey, do you have enough faith? Have you claimed the blood of Jesus? What promises have you forgotten? Go down the list. This God is nothing like that. This God looks at this despondent prophet and he cares for him holistically. He says, you're a physical human being living in a physical world. So I'm going to cook for you. I'm going to care for you physically, child. Here's a great meal. That's all he does. And then he realized Elijah is a relational being, just like you and me. So he just comes near and he asks him twice, what's wrong? And he just listens. And third, he realized Elijah was a spiritual being. So he says a little bit later on, you need to hear my voice in my presence. So here's a God who cares for him physically, relationally, spiritually. Is that good news to anybody? See, if you're not a Christian, I gotta say, and you're exploring Christianity, I think the way that somebody treats a depressed person reveals their worldview. Some people in our culture would say, you're depressed? Take a pill. Take a pill. So, Some people would say, hey, what you need to pray? You need some pray. You need faith. Some people just say, you need to go see a therapist. The Bible says you're a spiritual being, relational being, physical being, emotional being. God created all those dimensions. God says, I'm redeeming all those dimensions. Is that good news? So if you're tired and exhausted this morning, the good news... What if this God said, let me take care of you? See, there's only one, one sermon point this morning, and that is this, and we'll explore. Before you and I could attend to God, you need to let God attend to you. Before you and I could attend to God, we need to let God attend to us. In silence and solitude, God attends to us, attends to our souls. God has a mission for Elijah, and we're going to talk about it next week. And a mission for Elijah, he still has a mission for Elijah, and he's going to send Elijah out to do amazing things. But before God does that, God says, I need to attend to you. I need to just love on you. I need to shower on you. I need to replenish you. I need to fill you. If your activity for God is not flowing out of a hidden life with God, it's dangerous. You cannot give what you don't have, child of God. You cannot give what you don't have. If you are giving out of something you don't have, you're giving, as Parker Palmer says, a dangerous and a false gift. A gift that looks loving, but it isn't because it's a gift giving more out of a need to prove myself to myself and others rather than for them. I need to let God attend to us. Create space in which God, and the amazing thing is the gospel. You don't have to perform 
for God to attend to you. Can I get an amen? That's the prophets of Baal. Performing desperately. Because their God says, work, obey, perform. And maybe I will love you. Maybe I'll accept you. Tired and exhausted. Who has time? Get up. Our God says, your acceptance is not based on your performance, but my performance on the cross. Your affirmation and worth doesn't come from the fact that you're youthful. Your affirmation comes from the fact that I died for you on the cross. And when you and I place our faith in that cross, God now, right now, sees us as he sees his son, Jesus. And how desperately we need that gospel to wash over us on a daily basis. Where we just spread our arms wide and say, God, no performing, no doing. I am just making myself available here. Wash over me, fill me, replenish me, cleanse me. Renew me. I'm here. I'm here. Four years ago, I hit a wall. I hit an absolute emotional, mental wall. And I left for a three-month sabbatical. I was so tired, you guys, and so exhausted. After 11 years... I, I, was, I was so tired that it became like normal. I didn't even know that I was so tired. I told this to Carl. When I went away, literally, for the first two, three days, I couldn't stop my body from shaking. I couldn't stop the adrenaline rush that I'd run on for so long just to stop. And you know what I did? I try to fight through it, you know, like a good Korean American, you know, I was like, I'm going to work this out. So I was like, I'm going to fight through it. I try to read the Bible. I would get through two sentences and I'd be like, I don't want to do it. I try to write on my journal. I got through two words and I would just stop and physically, I, I literally couldn't stop my body from shaking. I told you guys, it's one thing to read a story and live a story. That's when I came across the story of Elijah. And this God, who I thought all my life, why, why would you not be disappointed, God? I, I could fight. Why would, you not, why would you not expect me to just push? This God came to me in simple question that is, Peter, allow your exhaustion to do its work and surrender it in my presence. And there were no lectures, no sermons. I literally just in my mind just collapsed into God's arms. In my disillusionment, I just collapsed into God's arms. And by the way, most people that would have seen me leading up to that point would have been like, he's good. He has things together. You know what came to my mind? I'm almost done. You know what came to my mind? This analogy of musical chairs. God gave me the analogy of musical chairs. What do I mean? You know, musical chairs, right? You know what I'm talking about. Music plays. 
literally you're running, walking around, walking around, walking around. The music stops and you plop under that chair. And I heard the voice of the Holy Spirit saying, right where you sit, right where you are, as you are. That's where I need you. Everything in me wanted to sanitize myself. Everything in me wanted to be clean myself up. Everything in me wanted to go, God, let me memorize that verse first. Everything wanted me to go, let me, go, let me finish that inbox. Let me clear up the voicemail. Everything in me wanted to finish and clear everything, prop myself up. And God goes, no, 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 no. The big mess that you are, just sit down right where you are. In my exhaustion. In my disillusionment. And when I allowed myself to feel, I felt a lot of anger, a lot of bitterness, a lot of sadness, and a lot of grief. Emotions that had been bottled up for years. The challenge for you and I know I'm not speaking for everybody. Challenge for you, some of you sitting here this morning and saying, how is he talking about my life right now? The challenge for you and me is to somehow bring ourselves to that place where we can just sit in silence and solitude in our exhaustion, in our dangerous tiredness, and without the pressure to somehow feel like you need to be more spiritual than you actually are, allow God to care for you. Today, before we leave, for the Elijahs among us, you need to somehow allow God to care for you. And we're going to do what we did every Sunday during the sermon series. We're going to have a time of silent solitude. And I, listen, listen. For some of you, when you enter into this space today, you enter it as you are. Right where you are. And if you feel overwhelming gratitude allow gratitude and give that space and say God I'm so grateful I'm so thankful if in that space this morning you feel grief, pain, sadness regret my prayer for you this entire week has been that you would be bold and courageous enough to allow that without having to sanitize mask it for you to feel that The invitation, just like Elijah's, was to come in the situation and state that we're in. No pretending. No fixing yourself up.
allowing yourself to be met by this God. And this morning, before we enter into this time of prayer, there is a silence and solitude. There's a prayer. Kristen, if you could, I'm going to pray this prayer. You can look up on the screen. I'm going to pray this prayer once, and then we're going to pray it together, and then silence and solitude. So again, I'm going to pray this prayer. Then we're going to pray it together. Then silence and solitude. Dear God, speak gently in my silence. When the loud outer noises of my surroundings and the loud inner noises of my fears keep pulling me away from you. Help me to trust that you are still there even when I am unable to hear you. Give me ears to listen to your small, soft voice saying, come to me, all who are overburdened, and I will give you rest. For I am gentle and humble of heart. Let that loving voice be my guide. Amen. We're going to pray this prayer together. Then I'll be the timekeeper. I want to gift you with this time today. Just five minutes. That's it. Let's pray this together. Dear God, speak gently in my silence. When the loud outer noises of my surroundings and the loud inner noises of my fears keep pulling me away from you, help me to trust that you are still there even when I am unable to hear you. Give me ears to listen. So a small, soft voice saying, Come to me, all who are overburdened, and I will give you rest. For I am gentle and humble of heart. Let that loving voice be my God.